Well, if you have your Bibles again with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1245. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 22. If you're a guest with us, we're uh, coming close to the conclusion of a short series that we've been engaged in entitled Family Matters. And we've been addressing different issues and matters that affect the family. And we're doing this because family matters. And family is under attack more than ever in our land. And so next week, Lord willing, we'll finish the series together. And if God continues to give me liberty in my study, the message that I've been working on for two weeks for next Sunday, I would just say it'll be helpful and you won't want to miss it. And I'll leave it at that. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 22, and I want to speak on this subject this morning, the misunderstood ingredient. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, and this is the word of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It may surprise you to learn that I am not known for my culinary skills or for my adventurous taste buds. In fact, my wife wonders if I have taste buds at all. Too often, we'll be enjoying a meal together, and she will look at me and say, Do you need salt? To which I will reply with a blank look on my face and say, I don't know. You tell me. You're the expert in these matters. Salt. It's power and ability to transform the taste of food is often misunderstood. Like the time my wife made a new recipe of cookies, and before they had even a chance to cool, I was ready to partake. And just as I was about to take the first bite, Gretchen stopped me and said, Wait, this will make it better. And then she proceeded to sprinkle salt on the cookie, and I was hooked. That day, I gained a new understanding of the power of salt. For when salt is used correctly, it doesn't taste like salt. But instead, it enhances the food to which it is applied. And just as the power of salt is often misunderstood, so is the power of submission in marriage. Now, friends, I hope you understand this morning that the world has no category for what I'm about to preach to you. The biblical principle of submission in marriage. And yet, when this often misunderstood ingredient is applied in a marriage, it enhances the home and all those who dwell in it. And so in this passage before us this morning, I'm going to examine with you five truths regarding submission. And at the end of our time, I pray you will come to realize why this missing ingredient needs to be a part of every marriage and every home. With that in mind, point number one, the creation of submission. Now, it's going to take me a few minutes to get to Ephesians chapter 5 because we're going by way of Genesis. And so you may even want to turn to Genesis 1 and 2, and that's where I'm beginning. The Bible teaches us repeatedly 
that God has ordained that the husband is to be the leader of the home and that the wife is to submit to the leadership of her husband. But you'll notice in the passage that we read in Ephesians chapter 5 that Paul does not refer to the origins of God's design for the family in this passage. To engage in a fuller understanding of how God has designed the home and marriage to function in the New Testament, you have to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 12, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Now, I'm not going to look at those this morning. I'm just suggesting to you that that is a good place for you to go. And what you'll find when you examine both of those passages is that Paul refers to the creation account in the book of Genesis. And he highlights the fact that the woman was made after the man, that the woman was made out of the man, and that the woman was made for the man. And again, our world has no category for this, friends, but you're going to have to decide this morning whether you're going to believe what the Bible says or what the world says about marriage and family and its origins. In addition to those three truths, Paul also adds that man is born from a woman. Man is born from a woman. Not man is born from a man. A woman. So that the man and the woman, listen, are dependent upon one another. That is how God has designed and orchestrated marriage and the home. That the husband and the wife have two distinct separate roles, and yet in those roles, they are dependent upon one another. And so I'm going to show you this in Genesis chapter 1. And kids and students, I want you to listen to your pastor this morning. If you're sitting beside your parents and they got their Bible open, I want you to look at the verses I'm getting ready to point out and read. If they don't have their Bible open, pull the Bible out of the pew rack and open it for them. Genesis chapter 1, because you are being told all kinds of lies about marriage and the family and the home, and I'm going to show you from God's word how God says marriage and the family and the home are to be, all right? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, this is what the Bible says. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you see that God created man and woman? And God created them in his own image. And God created only two types of people, male and female. I don't care what the culture is telling you about that. I don't care about the experiments that are being done on our culture and on the vulnerable in our culture. I'm telling you this morning that God's word says he created man and woman, male and female, and that is it. And that's the way it will always be, even to the day of judgment. And when you turn to Genesis chapter 2, what you find is an even more detailed account of what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 of how God created Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And when you look in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, this is what the Bible says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. And then if you look in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, you find the culmination of the creation of woman. And it takes place after God has paraded all of the animals before Adam. And he's instructed Adam to name all the animals. 
And as they're going by him, Adam's looking at the elephant, and he's saying, well, that's an elephant, but I can't relate to that. And that's a giraffe, and I can't relate to that. And so what does God do? Verse 21 of Genesis 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then notice what the man said. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. My translation, whoa, man, I can relate to her. She is different because she was taken out of man. Verses 24 and 25 of Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the creation of man and woman. This is the creation of marriage. This is the union of marriage. This is the way God has designed marriage to function. And at the end of Genesis chapter 2, the Bible teaches that the man and the woman were perfectly related to one another, and they were perfectly related to God. Now, do you know what you find in this account, friends? You find the principle of headship and submission. Both the man and the woman are equal in personhood. They are both created in the image of God, but they are both given different functions to fulfill. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, God says that the function that the woman is to fulfill in the marriage is that of helper. And so from the very beginning of the marriage covenant, God has established that the man is to be the leader of the home and the woman is to be the helper of the home. This is what God has established, friends. This is what the Bible Teaches. This is not something made up to suppress women and hold them back. I'm going to argue with you in this sermon this morning from the text of Scripture that when marriage is embraced the way God designed it, rather than holding women back, it sets them free. And so according to God, the role of helping, listen, is immensely powerful it is meaningful, and it is a divine task. Here is a definition of a helper. It's someone who comes alongside to meet the needs of another. The wife supports what is lacking in the husband. She nurtures, she protects, and she lends support where her husband is weak and faltering. And you say, well, I don't get the importance of this. It sounds kind of demeaning and underrating of women. And I say to you, you don't understand the biblical concept behind it. Did you know this morning, theologically speaking, that the word helper is the same word that is used to describe the activity of God? Listen to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 6, what the writer of Hebrews says about God. So we can confidently say that the Lord is my helper. Whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? The writer of Hebrews takes the word helper that is used to describe the role of the woman in a marriage. And he says, God is our helper. Now you think that's demeaning? It's exalting. It's exalting. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Who is Jesus describing? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. He is described as the helper. The word helper describes the activity of of God in the lives of believers. And when you apply that theological understanding to the role of a wife in a marriage, she is fulfilling a similar role that God fulfills. She is the helper in the home. And I love what John Stott said about this. Listen, this is not chauvinism, this is creationism. And there's a difference. 
I want you to listen to this next statement that I put in my notes. I'm going to read it word for words. I want to make sure I get it right. And I want to be on record for what I've said. What God has established in creation, no culture, no government, no legislature, has the right to redefine and attempt to destroy. This is God's institution, not the government. Not the culture, not a political agenda. This is God's plan for the home, friends. And in a response to a question from the Pharisees regarding divorce, do you know what Jesus did? He quoted Genesis chapter 2, and Jesus affirmed what God the Father established in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. God joins a marriage together friends that man and that woman they stand before a public assembly but they stand before a greater assembly they stand before the court of heaven and when they say I do they're making a covenant to one another and they're making a covenant to God and what God brings together listen no man has a right to redefine or take away no man and this is an important understanding to Ephesians chapter 5. And so I ask you this morning, church, do you see and believe from the black and white pages of your Bible that marriage belongs to God, that it doesn't belong to the government, it doesn't belong to the courts, it doesn't belong to the culture, it doesn't belong to a political movement, and it doesn't belong to a political organization. Do you see that for yourself this morning? Do you believe that? Do you have a conviction of that concerning marriage? If you do, if you believe that marriage belongs to God, then friends, you must believe that God has the right to establish marriage the way he wants it. If you believe what the Bible says is true, what I've just shown you from the pages of Scripture, you then must believe that God has the right to set the parameters around it the way he wants to. And if he does, which he does, you then must believe and embrace the fact that God created marriage with distinct roles for the man and the woman. And so I ask you, church, do you really believe it? Do you believe what God says about marriage is true? Or are you trying to redefine your marriage according to your own ideas and the ideas of the world that have seeped into your thinking? It's an honest question that you must deal with in your life and in your home. So we not only see the creation of submission. Secondly, I want you to see the corruption of submission. Stay in Genesis. I'm going somewhere. It's taken me a while to get there. It isn't long in the creation account until the relationship between man and woman and their relationship to God becomes distorted. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that yielding to the temptation of the serpent, Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened, they were ashamed of their nakedness, and so they took fig leaves and they sewed them together to cover their nakedness. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that they then hid from God. And when you read through the narrative account of Genesis chapter 3, you find that God called to Adam and he asked Adam the question that he asks of everyone. Where are you in relationship to me? Adam and Eve had walked with God in the cool of the day. There was 
perfect fellowship between them and God. And there was perfect fellowship between Adam and Eve. They were naked and they were unashamed. And the moment they sinned, they became ashamed and felt guilty. And they covered their nakedness and they tried to hide from God. And friends, that's just what every single one of us tries to do with our sin apart from Jesus Christ. We try to hide from God and cover it up thinking that he can't see it. And I remind you this morning that God sees everything and God knows everything. Nothing can be hidden from him. And when God asked Adam and Eve where they were in relationship to him, it wasn't to get information. He knew where they were. He wanted them to see where they were. And he wants the same from you and me this morning. Where are you in relationship to me? And after he asks him that question, Adam responds to him and the first thing he does, like a typical man, blames it on somebody else. It's the wife you gave me, God. It's really your fault, God. You gave me this wife, and look what she caused me to do. It's your fault, God. And so then God turns to Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. So what does God do? God curses the serpent. God curses the ground from which Adam will work and labor the rest of his life. That's why you cut your fingers on thorns and thistles yesterday when you worked in the yard. Thank you, Adam. And then God punishes Eve. Now, you got your Bible in Genesis 3.16? Look at what he says. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, look at the end of it, because this is the part we miss. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is the corruption of submission. Because of sin entering the world, sin distorted the marriage relationship. And God's plan for the home is now distorted and affected by sin. And that means moving forward from Genesis 3.16, man in his sinfulness will be oppressive and domineering and tyrannical and ungodly in his leadership. Or man will be so passive and indifferent that he won't lead. Or the woman will resist the leadership of the loving husband and try to take the leadership of the home from him. And that's what happens in every single one of our marriages to one degree or another because of sin. John MacArthur said this about this truth. With the fall and its curse came the distortion of women's proper submissiveness and of a man's proper authority. That is where the battle of the sexes began. It's where women's liberation and male chauvinism came into existence. Women have a sinful inclination to usurp man's authority, and men have a sinful inclination to put women under their feet. The divine decree that man would rule over woman in this way was part of God's curse on humanity. And it takes a manifestation of grace in Christ by the filling of the Holy Spirit to restore the created order and harmony of proper submission in a relationship that has become so corrupted and distorted by sin. End quote. It takes a work of God in the life of the man. It takes a work of God in the life of a woman. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit marriage in that family, in that home, to correct the distortion that sin has brought into the home and into marriage. But the good news of the gospel is, friends, Christ redeems marriages. He redeems it. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 to 27, Paul points to us how Christ models servant leadership for the man. Now, it's safe to go back to Ephesians chapter 5 because I'm going to stay there. Is it really loud? It sounds really loud to me. It's really loud. Can you cut that back a little bit, Jim, because I'm prone to get fired up. <laughs> Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ redeems the husband's role of leadership in marriage because he sets the example for how a husband is to leave. He's to lead lovingly. He's to lead sacrificially. He is to lead in such a way that his wife and his children are becoming more and more like Christ under his leadership. The husband with the example of Christ, listen, has no right to be oppressive has no right to be demeaning, has no right to be tyrannical. He only has the right to lovingly serve his wife and his home. And Christ has redeemed that. And so I say to you this morning, man, if you're living in any other kind of leadership in your home than the example that Christ has set for you, you're in sin and you need to repent. There's no excuse for it. Then, if you go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, don't do that. I'm just saying, if you go there, you'll find that Christ redeems the example of submission for the wife. Because in this great Christological passage, Paul describes how Christ humbled himself and left the glory and the splendor and the majesty of heaven and came to earth as a servant submitting himself to the Father's will. And just as Christ submitted to the Father to do the work of salvation on earth and on the cross, he redeems and sets the example of a wife who lovingly, willingly, joyfully submits to her husband. Christ redeems Mary. So husbands, are you following the example that Christ has set for you by lovingly, sacrificially leading your wife and your family? Can you be described as that kind of leader? I'll ask it another way, men. Is your wife and your children flourishing under your leadership? I mean, are they just growing and happy and joyful because it's a delight to live in a home with you. Wives, are you following the example that Christ has set for you by humbly and joyfully and willingly submitting to the leadership of your husband? Is it a joy for him to lead you Or does he dread it because he knows there's going to be a World War III that takes place every time? Well, we see the creation of submission and the corruption of submission. Now we're going to see the context of submission. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As I told you a few weeks ago when I taught the passage about the men in this section of Scripture, at the end of Ephesians chapter 5 through the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul teaches about several kinds of relationships. He teaches about the husband and the wife. He teaches about parents and children. He teaches about a father and his children. He teaches about workers and bosses. And under all of it is the principle of submission that's found in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. So in other words, to properly understand everything that Paul says about wives and husbands, you have to view it through the lens of verse 21, which says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And according to this verse, submission goes beyond the bounds of marriage, teaching us that everyone who fears God will be characterized by a spirit of submission, first to Christ and then to one another. In other words, submission isn't just about the wife. Submission is for every Christian. Submission is two people or a group of people seeking each other's best interests 
as they seek to honor and glorify Christ. And if you don't understand the principle of submission in verse 21, you'll just think like many liberal theologians think that Paul hated women. And that's why he wrote verse 22. But he didn't. And the Holy Spirit told him to write verse 22. So really, friends, your problem is not with Paul. It's with God. John Stott said that submission is a humble recognition of the divine ordering of society. And in verse 22, Paul says that the wife must honor Christ by submitting to her husband. Now, the word submit is often misunderstood. This word has nothing to do with inferiority. And so if you try to make it say that it has to do with inferiority and the woman is less than the man, then you are forcing a definition on the word that the word does not give for itself. I've already shown you in Scripture that men and women are both created in the image of God and they are completely equal in personhood. This has everything to do with role and function in the home. And this word submit is a combination of two roots, meaning under and to arrange together. And so in its narrowest definition, submission means to arrange all parts underneath. In other words, a wife arranges the parts of her life under the leadership of her husband. Now, you'll notice the context in which the wife is to submit in verse 22. She is to submit to her own husband, not everybody else's husband, her own husband. The submission of the wife is something that happens in the context of her marriage, not in all of society. And what Paul is teaching us is that the husband has given, been given a leadership role by God, and that leadership role in no way diminishes the worth or the value of a wife. We've established in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 that the husband is incomplete without the wife. That's why God has given him a helper. And it is in this partnership role with the husband that the wife will find her fulfillment and completion in life. Helper. Now notice in the text what also is absent. Nowhere in this text, look at it, men. Nowhere in this text does it say that the wife's submission is something forced on her by her husband. I will say it to you this way, men. If you have to inform your wife that you are the leader and the head of the home, you are not. If you have to tell somebody you're the leader, you are not the leader. She will know whether you are the leader or not. And it doesn't come through demand or oppression or a hard heart. Submission is the deference of a loving wife to her husband in honoring Christ. And notice in verse 22 that the motive for this submission is the wife's love for Christ. She submits to their, her husband as if she is submitting to the Lord. Because in reality, ladies, when you submit to your husband, you are submitting to the Lord. You're submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ because he has told you to submit to your husband. And so by submitting to your husband, you are submitting to Christ. It means, ladies, that the Lord Jesus Christ should be your number one priority in life, that he is your full allegiance. And then as you surrender and submit to your life to Christ, you are surrendering and submitting how you live in your marriage to Christ. And you're following Christ's command and example. Now, I found this quote helpful. This should not be taken to mean that wives are to be doormats, allowing their husbands to walk all over them. Nor are they to be silent partners, wordlessly carrying out their husband's directives. It means that wives are to willingly support their husband's leadership, not balking or undermining him. 
They are to be active participants in the challenging task of running a Christian home. They are to do everything they can to encourage and support their husband's leadership in the home, but not blindingly or unquestioningly. When the husband is in error or even in outright sin, it is the wife's responsibility to lovingly confront him, pointing him back to the lordship of Christ as the ultimate authority. It takes both partners to make a Christian marriage and a home. It takes both of you to do this task that Paul has called you to. And ladies, I want you to listen to what the Word of God teaches about this submission. It is a powerful force of influence in your marriage. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Peter said about submission as it relates to marriage. And I want you to understand the context of these two verses that I'm about to read to you. Many scholars believe that Peter, in this passage, was writing to Christian wives who had unbelieving husbands. And Peter was giving them instruction about how to live with their unbelieving wife. I want you to listen to the beauty of this instruction, ladies. And I want you to see in it, and don't miss it, the power of influence that you have in your marriage and in your home. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Submit to your husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And he goes on in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 to describe what that conduct and what that life looks like. And you know what Peter says to the wives? You can win your unbelieving husbands without a word by being a godly woman and wife and following his leadership when he doesn't lead you into sin. There is power and influence. Ladies, listen to me. Please listen to the heart of your pastor speaking on behalf of your husband. If I can have the liberty of doing that. Because God created your husband to be the leader in your marriage. Your husband longs for and is empowered by your affirmation. He's empowered by your willingness to follow. He's empowered by your loyalty. He's empowered by the support he finds in you. Ladies, it's fuel to his leadership. You don't believe me? You got your Bible open? Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33. It's the very last word that Paul gives on this subject in this passage. Do you see it? However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you know what I think Paul does in this verse? I think he shows us what the man's greatest need is and what the woman's greatest need is in their life and in their marriage. Men, do you see it? We've already talked about it. I think Paul is teaching you that your wife's greatest need is your love. That she knows without a shadow of a doubt you love her, you have her best interests at heart, and you're leading not for yourself, you're leading for her good. You're leading for her good. And she feels secure in your love. And ladies, do you know what I think Paul is teaching is your husband's greatest need? It's your respect. He wants you to think that he's the man. That underneath his shirt he's wearing this morning, there's a big S. Super husband. Superman. That as the, I, I don't think the kids say this anymore, so now I'm dating myself and I'm in trouble and I gotta say it. He wants you to think he's all that in a bag of chips. Y'all still say that anymore? Or, or am I in a new generation now? I think I'm in a new generation now. That's, that's what he thinks. And listen to me, ladies. Here's the reality. 
He knows he's not. He knows he is not all of that. Your husband struggles to lead. Your husband wonders if he's doing it right. Your, your husband wonders if he's missing opportunities, if he's making mistakes with the kids, if he's making mistakes with you. He wonders about those things. Do you know what fuels his leadership? You know what just helps him thrive in that role? You. Oh, you're doing good. Keep up the good work. I'm proud of you. I thank God that gave, God gave me you as my husband. I love watching how you interact with the kids. I love how you make me feel secure. I love the tone you set in our home as a husband and as a dad. There is power and influence in your words, in your followership, in your love for your husband. And if any man in this room is honest with himself, he knows what I've just said to you is absolutely true. He's sitting there thinking right now, how'd the pastor get in my head? That's what he's thinking. You don't believe me? When you get the kids situated, when you get home today, ask him. Ask him. He'll say everything that Pastor Darren said about men and leadership is true. He'll say it. So wives, are you fulfilling your God-appointed role in your home? Are you, or are you running in a lane that doesn't belong to you? That's the question, right? So we see the creation of submission, the corruption of submission, the context of submission. And I want to show you the clarification of submission. In a book entitled Experiencing Spiritual Breakthroughs, the author identifies several misconceptions about submission, and I found him so helpful because the people that I talk to, most everybody misunderstands submission and headship. And I think these will be helpful to you, and I'll be able to give them to you quickly. Number one, the first misconception is that a husband thinks it's his job to make his wife submit. And as I've said to you, it is not your job. That is your wife's responsibility, and you will never, men, would you listen to the heart of your pastor this morning? You will never be able to demand submission from your wife. And the more you try, the further away from her you will drive her. Instead of demanding it, are you listening, men? Instead of demanding it, why don't you live like a godly man and lead her in such a way that she'll willfully submit? I found that I've got my hands full just thinking about how I'm leading. I don't have time to worry about whether she submits. Misconception number two. If a wife is to submit to her husband as to the Lord, then she must act like and treat her husband as if he is the Lord. Wrong. He is not the Lord. There's only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and your husband bows to him. Misconception number three. If a wife submits to her husband in everything, then she must follow him into sin or danger if he insists. Look at Ephesians 5.24. Do you see it? Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In everything? Does that mean everything, pastor? Does that mean if my husband wants me to look at pornography with him, I'm obliged to do that? No. If he ever comes to you with a request like that, Tell him to repent of his sins and go get right with God. No, your allegiance is to Christ. And if your husband ever tries to lead you into sin, you are to refuse. You are to remind him of where your allegiance lies. It lies to Jesus Christ. And if you still have a problem with him, come see your pastor. I'll talk to him. Misconception number four. A wife is supposed to submit to her husband, but he's also supposed to submit to her. No, he is to lead her and she is to submit. But listen, men, this is what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you can't help your wife. 
It doesn't mean that you can't follow her opinion. You have blind spots in your leadership and God has given you a helpmate to see beyond your blind spots. And you will be a better leader in your home if you'll listen to your wife. She sees things that you cannot see. If you could see him, you wouldn't need a helper. So quit acting like you got it all figured out and you don't need help. Humble yourself, confess your pride, listen to your wife, and sometimes you'll find you might need to make the decision based on what she thought, because she's smarter than you. And ladies, when your husband listens to you and defers to your opinion, it doesn't mean he's not leading. It actually means he's leading wiser because he's listened to you. Misconception number five. If I submit to my husband, then I won't be able to voice my opinions or feel confident that my feelings and ideas matter. Ladies, submission is not passivity. Submission is not being quiet while your husband runs your family over the cliff. Submission uses words. Submission disagrees. But it's how you disagree. It's the tone. It's the attitude. It's the posture of your heart. So you have to think about these principles. And husbands, you have to ask yourself, have I misunderstood what submission is all about? Do I have too narrow of a view of what this means? Am I being overbearing or demeaning to the point that I'm crushing my wife and my children? Or am I being so passive in the home that my wife has to step up and lead because there's a vacuum of leadership? And wives, you have to ask yourself, are you giving your husband the input and the words and the encouragement that he desperately needs to lead you? See, when you misunderstand it, everyone is affected. Well, I told you there's five, and we've made it to four, and the fifth one is the shortest one. So you're in good shape. We've seen the creation of submission, the corruption of submission, the context of submission, and the clarification of submission. And I'll leave you with the climax of submission in verses 23 and 24 of Ephesians 5. Do you see it? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. These two verses give the ultimate picture of marriage. It's a picture of Christ and his church. And here's what that means, friends. When a husband is lovingly leading his wife and his family like Christ loved the church, and a wife is lovingly submitting to her husband like the church submits to Christ, the world around us sees a picture of Christ and his church. The world around us sees the gospel. And it's a picture that is not only for now in the day we're living. Are you, are you catching this? It is a picture for the future because the Bible says that there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be united with his bride, the church, for all eternity. And your marriage, when it's functioning the way God designed it, is a picture of that. These verses also give us the ultimate purpose for marriage. It's the display and the de de declaration of the gospel of Christ. Do you know what we're saying when our marriage functions like this? We're saying that we are sinners and that we're in need of Christ as our Savior and that our marriage pictures how God takes two sinners, rescues them, joins their lives together as one to display his glory and to display the picture of the gospel and his church and what Christ has done for all sinners. That's what your marriage portrays when you're living in it the way God designed. And these verses provide hope for every marriage. Christ. Just as Christ 
loved the church and gave himself up for it. And just as Christ redeemed the church and redeemed the people for himself and the church submits to him, friends, Christ is the hope for your marriage. You may say this morning that my marriage is a mess. You may be brokenhearted over your marriage. You may be brokenhearted over a marriage that fell apart and is no more. It doesn't matter where you are, who you are, or what's going on in your life this morning regarding marriage or family. There is hope for every single one of us, and that hope is found in exactly the same spot, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are never without hope, never without hope with Christ. Christ died so you could live. Christ died so that your marriage could live. Christ died so that you could thrive. There is hope. I love what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, marriage is not a recipe for the subjugation of a woman, but a blueprint for her true freedom in a healthy, loving relationship with her husband. Best of all, it means that our marriage and home life, the wonder, power, beauty, holiness, and transformation of the gospel can be seen not only by the rest of the family, but also by those who are not yet believers. That's it, friends. Your marriage and the purpose of your marriage is bigger than you. It's about the gospel and the glory of Christ. And who, what man, what woman would not want to submit to that? I'll close with this final verse. Hebrews 13, 4. Let the marriage be held in honor among all. Friends, if marriage is going to be held in honor among everybody, it's going to begin in the house of God. You see what the world is doing to marriage. The world is not going to hold marriage in honor. The world is going to destroy marriage. The world is going to redefine marriage. If marriage is going to be held in honor, it must begin in the house of God. It must begin with men who are willing to embrace in humility, loving leadership in their home and quit being passive and quit being ungodly in their leadership. It's going to begin there. It's going to begin with women who are running in their own lane and joyfully, willingly following their husband. It's going to be a mom and dad who are committed to raising their children in the things of God and not in the things of the world. If the world is going to see Christ in our homes, if the world is going to see marriage held in honor, it must begin with the church. It must begin with you and me. And the question is, are you going to add this misunderstood ingredient into your home? Are you going to build a home in a marriage that displays the honor and the glory of Christ? That's the question. Family matters. Marriages matter. Homes matter. Let's pray.